This is the Scott Radley Show podcast, and on today's episode, did Hamilton dodge a bullet when we didn't win the Amazon headquarters that everybody was bidding for when we spent all that money to get it? Because it sounds like some people anyway, down in New York and Washington area who got it are saying, wait a sec, how much are we giving in incentives for you to come here? We'll be talking about that. Also, today we will be chatting about chiropractic. There are a lot of people online, or at least a number of them, making some pretty extravagant claims about what chiropractic can actually do. We're going to find out from someone who is a chiropractor. Can it really cure cancer? Can it cure blindness? He'll tell us. All that, stick around, coming up on the podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You will remember that it was not that long ago, six months ago, maybe, maybe less than that. I can't remember exactly when that Hamilton was in the throes of making its pitch, making its bid to try and lure Amazon to this area. Hamilton, Burlington was in the mix as well. Niagara, they were talking about it. It was all going to be this big thing. 50,000 high paying tech jobs were going to be coming to wherever. And we were pitching hard to get this. Well, the decision has been made. And Amazon is setting up its HQ2, its second headquarters in New York and Virginia, close by to each other in that area. But what we're finding about in the days since the announcement was made, what we're finding is what those cities did and states did to lure Amazon to them. In exchange for those 50,000 jobs that are being promised and in a big investment of something like $5 billion to get set up, we are hearing that they offered up, the states and the cities, something like $2 billion U.S. In, in incentives. In some reports, it's up to $3 billion in incentives. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Makes you wonder whether we dodged a bullet here in Hamilton by actually not getting Amazon. Marvin Ryder is from the DeGroote School of Business. You hear him on this show and others on this station all the time. Marvin, thanks for doing this today. Glad to be here. Uh, We heard in this whole lead up to this and the whole discussion that Hamilton and the other cities that were putting in their bids, that this was all about quality of life and location and ability to have a high tech sector and blah, 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 blah. Uh, Was this really in the end all simply about who was willing to give Jeff Bezos the most amount of money? Well, I'm going to be uh, a little more optimistic here and say, no, I don't think this was all about that. I think Amazon did set out uh, and and was quite honest from the beginning saying, look, uh, we're going to do this. We're going to build a a second headquarters. Uh, Tell us why we should come to your community. Uh, Nearly 200 um, cities participated in this free-for-all. They spent over $100 million to prepare bids and submit them. And I'm not surprised that people today feel that they were taken advantage of. I I think there were people who got into the lottery uh, who really didn't have a chance from day one. Uh, But again, with a lottery, if you don't have a ticket, you don't have a chance to win. Hamilton, I had always said the odds were very much against Hamilton. Uh, They had set some minimum criteria, like a city with a million population. We don't have a million. Now, yes, if we extend the borders as far as we possibly can, maybe add in St. Catharines or or go up the road to Oakville, oh, look, now we got a million people. But, you know, that isn't really what they said. Uh, we talked ourselves into it that we had a good chance, and we spent here in Hamilton, we spent not quite, but almost a half a million dollars on a bid proposal. Uh, if, again, if there's any consolation, about half that money came from the private sector, so it wasn't all public money going into it. But it was going to be a stretch from the beginning, and I think uh, people really did not, 
fully think through what the um, what the cost might have been if a company were to come here. So forget about these incentives. Just what does it mean to instantly have an employer that had 50,000 jobs? Our biggest employer right now is Hamilton Health Sciences, somewhere between 10,000 and 11,000 jobs. This is five times the size of that. What is that going to mean to housing prices? What's that going to mean for the talent pool if suddenly they want 50,000 people uh, to get these high-paying jobs? It, it would really have shifted the dynamics locally. Well, there was a piece in uh, in all places, the Orlando Sun Sentinel. I don't know exactly why it was there, but it was a, it was a piece today in the paper by a writer there offering kind of what you're just saying, and it was a warning retroactively to New York saying, here's what Amazon actually did to Seattle with the things you were saying. It was driving up home prices and the cost of groceries and the cost of this and the cost of that, and they they were offering it as a warning. Now, I, I'm not sure that New York is going to be decimated by this because it's already so wildly overpriced and everything else, but it would have had that impact on Hamilton, though. It very much could have had that uh, impact. Now, uh, let's also keep in mind that Bezos has picked two cities near cities. They're not actually in New York. They're across the river on Long Island uh, in an area right now that's a former industrial site. Uh, he's going to a suburb of Washington, D.C. that's in, Ale- in Alexandria, Virginia. But he is going, no doubt about it, they will change the dynamics in those areas, not just the cost of, of housing and land, but the, you know, the shift of people. What are all those people going to want? What are they going to need? Uh, uh, when they're sucking this talent out of an area who else is going to be able to uh, hire? Uh, what is that going to mean even for job prices, what have you? Maybe you'll have to start paying your employees a lot more. Now, look, I, I understand that some of those are nice problems to have. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if suddenly everyone had to get paid a lot more? Do you remember when uh, things were booming out in Calgary and, and people went out to a Tim Hortons and suddenly got paid a $1,000 bonus if they would just stay for three weeks or eight weeks or something like that. Wouldn't that be wonderful for me individually? Maybe, but I just don't think we understand the kind of panic that would, would set in around all of that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about Amazon. The decision has been made. It's not going to be in Hamilton. You knew that already, but it's going to be in, in a suburb of New York and a suburb of Washington, D.C. This new... 50,000 job second headquarters that we had bid for. We'd been trying to get here in Hamilton because apparently it was going to bring in a lot of money and, as I say, a lot of jobs. Uh, chatting with Marvin Ryder about this, and Marvin, there there is a piece, uh, there's a number of pieces that you can find online already, but uh, there are a number of politicians in New York, largely Democratic politicians, uh, regardless, who are saying, one of the headlines is, New York City to Amazon drop dead they are saying, listen, this is insane that we're giving $3 billion in incentives to a private company like Amazon that's worth the billions and billions that it is. This money is taxpayers' money and could be going into doing roads or other infrastructure, things like that. What do you say to that? Yeah, so that's, again, this is a really wonderful question to ask. Uh, I know people have complained that the city of Hamilton doesn't do enough. We should be giving more incentives. And in fact, in Canada, in Canada, it's illegal for a city to try to do this work. What you discover is if you leave cities to their own devices, they will promise the moon and then wind up never getting that money back. They'll, they'll almost bankrupt themselves to try to get this. Uh, now, fortunately, I'll call it that, at least in Canada, it's up to the state or the federal government to perhaps offer incentives. But even then, corporate welfare, this doling out of cash, it's just nowhere near as common as we see down in the United States. So if you take uh, New York State, New York State's in this for at least $1.5 billion towards the construction costs. 
part of this money is coming to help offset the jobs. Uh, and you know, we talk about them paying a hundred thousand dollars a year. Well, some of these incentives are like three hundred thousand dollars a job. Well, wait a minute. You've just paid the salary for somebody for three years. Uh, when are you going to get that money back? We're going to waive the property taxes. Well, who's going to pay for the roads and the sewer and the water and those things that you need? And, and that's my fear about some of what America does is they, they are so desperate for these jobs, so desperate for this investment, that they're probably giving away much more than they're really going to benefit from. I would say to any business, you know, if it makes sense for you to be there, if those numbers work out, you shouldn't need any incentives at all. But I don't blame the company if people are going to throw this at them and offer them free land. Um, you know, it's amazing what they do. And I should tell you that on that front, the real loser in a way is New Jersey, because New Jersey had offered $7 billion, $7 billion of incentives for uh, Amazon to come there. So Bezos could have even done better. He did, wasn't totally driven by where he could get the best deal. The flip side of this, so we've got the naysayers down there who are saying this $3 billion of taxpayers' money should not be going to incentivize bringing Amazon to New York City. The flip side is, and it's kind of the opposite, uh, 50,000 high-paying jobs, even if it does take two or three years for this to be paid off or to break even, if you, uh, you can do the math, uh, Marvin, you're way better at math than I am, but whatever that number works out to a 50,000, and let's say they're making 150 or 200,000 each, uh, over a number of years, that money being cycled into the local economy is a huge jolt for the local economy. Well, it can be, but also keep in mind that these are future jobs. Bezos himself, although he, you know, he painted this picture uh, of the campus that they would build, it's not going to be built all at once. It's going to be phased in. And you also have to ask yourself, what are Amazon's long-term potential? Uh, I'm not about to tell you that Amazon hasn't made a big difference in the world. It's the third largest company in the world. It's made Bezos one of the richest men in the world to date. But if you can come from nothing and do that in 10 years, you can also go the other way in Mm. 10 years. And so I'm not actually certain what the future is. Amazon threw us for a loop last year. Here they were shaking up retail by being an online-only company. Then they did two things. They bought Whole Foods, which is a grocery store chain, and said they were going to keep those, so they got into bricks and mortar that way, and then Amazon came out with a robot store. Great fanfare. Oh, my God, you'd walk in. You don't, there's going to be no cash registers. You just walk in. You get recognized when you walk in. Take things off the shelf. It's going to be wonderful. But you haven't heard anything about that now for a year. This was the man who also announced via 60 Minutes four years ago that he wasn't going to need FedEx and Purolator or Canada Post, we're all going to deliver your packages by drones, fleets of drones yes. covering the United States. Well, that hasn't happened either. So, you know, the old bird in the hand, two in the bush, uh, I think this could be a wonderful godsend. This could be a tremendous shot in the arm for somebody, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. And frankly, again, I, I'm a little disappointed that Bezos went to places like Washington, D.C. And, and New York. Sure, I'd love to see it in Canada, but I thought, for instance, if he really wanted to talk about transformation, put his company in Detroit. Take the mm. old hub of American industry, put the new hub of American industry in there. That would have been a wonderful social experiment and showing a side of the company that said, we're, we're not all about the, 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 the dollar signs. But instead, he did what, what you're not surprised he did. He followed the money. Uh, your, your image of all these thousands and thousands of Amazon drones, it has a picture of like Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, exactly. uh, you know, that uh, maybe a little terrifying. Just before we go, 
we in Hamilton spent, I don't know, what was it, 250000 something like that? A half a million, yes. Okay, half a million on this. Was, was it predictable that we had no chance, and thus, if it was, was this a mistake, or was there some value that we can still glean out of this and, and, and say, well, you know, we didn't get Amazon, but we still got something? Right. Well, uh, remember that in this lottery, there were something like 182 losers and only two winners, so most of the people were a loser. I, I had said from the beginning it was a long shot for Hamilton, and I don't blame us for going out and buying a lottery ticket. I think we had to get into the lottery. What would it say for a politician who just didn't believe in his city enough to say, well, we're not worthy of this? That Oh, that'd be you know, a, a shot in the arm. You'd never get reelected with that. So we had to play. I'm not sure we had to play at that amount. Now, when you ask uh, economic development, when you ask the mayor about this, they'll say, well, you know, why did it cost this money? We really needed to update our materials and really make them 21st century ready. And on that front, you know, even though we spent that money for Amazon, we can recycle these materials. We are making our case to other companies to come here. And while they're not of that scale, uh, you can think in the last few years, some of our victories, the Canada Bread Factory, the Tim Hortons Roasting Factory, Canada Packers came here. And they're using these new updated materials to try to track more. So, you know, we're going to have to spend the money anyway. We probably spent it more at one time than we had planned on. But it's not the end of the world. And, and look, if for a little while we took an extra pride in ourselves, that's good too. But it was a long shot from the beginning. And I, I think uh, glad we played, glad we got a ticket. I'm not surprised at the outcome. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Glad to be here, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You're probably aware of the ever-present fight over the benefits of holistic medicine. And when I say holistic medicine, uh, there are those who have very specific terminologies for that. I'm simply counting anything that's under the umbrella of not including pharmaceuticals for your medicinal purposes, things that are generally you would consider healthy and non-prescription based. Well, lately there has been an ongoing battle under that umbrella about chiropractic. Some are arguing now that chiropractic, which many people listening use to, in many of them would say to great effect, but some are arguing that chiropractic can cure everything from cancer to deafness to blindness and everything in between. There are those online, there are those in certain places who are saying that it is essentially a miracle medicine, miracle practice. Others are saying, yes, it has medicinal and medical value, but let's not get completely out of hand about what it can do. And we can talk about what it can do for sure, but more interesting to me and what I want to talk about right now is the seeming lack of guidelines around what can and can't be claimed as benefits under this title of chiropractic. Dr. Ralph Shulo is a chiropractor in town here, a very well-known chiropractor. He works with the Bulldogs. He works with the Tiger Cats. He works as he has his own clinic. He, everybody works with Ralph. Uh, he joins us now. Ralph, thanks for doing this today. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you, as I say, you're a chiropractor. You clearly, obviously believe in this. Yep. So as we get started, what do we unquestionably, undisputably, n- no argument, no controversy, what do we absolutely know that chiropractic can actually do for someone? It's pretty well established um, for care for what we call musculoskeletal injuries. So by musculoskeletal injuries, neck pain, back pain, neck pain with headache, um, soft tissue injuries, 
Um, those are the things that it's most established for. So just the regular aches and pains and neck and back stuff that we all get. Fix those things or relieve those things? Well, it, it depends. I mean, some things are, you know, quote, curable, uh, and some things are manageable. No different than, um, let's take a diabetic patient. Sometimes uh, they're able to make some changes that can cure the condition. Sometimes we manage it. So it depends on the uh, nature of the injury, uh, the amount of time it's been around, um, the age of the person, but we can definitely help manage it and in some cases provide uh, complete relief. I think most people know uh, that when they think about a chiropractor, they just think of a giant crack of someone adjusting your back. You can actually go on YouTube now and just watch people's backs cracking and hear the giant cracks. Some people get a kick out of that. Um, What is the principle behind this then? Um, So, I mean, chiropractic is not so much a treatment as it is, of course, a profession, but under the guise of chiropractic, um, the hallmark thing is sort of what we think of as manipulation or joint adjustment. And that's the, you know, quote, going to get your back cracked, which is just the noise when you do an adjustment or manipulation to the spine or even sometimes extremity joints, you know, knees, shoulders, elbows, ankles, etc. But that's only one part of what a chiropractor does. I mean, spinal manipulation is uh, the hallmark of what we do, but we do soft tissue therapy. We use modalities like electrotherapy, ultrasound. We use heat, cold. Some chiropractors utilize acupuncture. We uh, give a rehabilitative advice. We discuss ergonomic advice, proper sleeping position. So those are all the things that a chiropractor can do. But yes, the adjustment or that uh, quote, the cracking noise, that's uh, a large part of what chiropractors do, particularly as it pertains to spinal problems. So this is where we jump in here today, because lately I have been hearing all kinds of claims online, on social media, on the internet, other places. Uh, And I'm sure I know you have too, because I've seen you fighting back against some of these things on Twitter and other places. Uh, But some of these claims are that chiropractic will cure cancer and it can make blind people see and it will cure deafness and can improve immunity. I mean, some of these things are incredible statements if they're true. Is there any scientific documentation to these things? There is not. Now, if we go back to when chiropractic first started, uh, Dr. Palmer, Mr. Palmer at the time, I guess, um, felt that because the nerves that exit the spine go to every part of the body, in which they do, he thought that adjusting the spine could relieve pressure on a nerve and make those other injured areas heal better. So if the nerve that was going to your pancreas wasn't was being pinched on, you'd get relief if you got adjusted. Well, that that's sort of an old-school... Uh, thinking that doesn't apply now. Chiropractic is well established for the treatment of these spinal disorders and other extremity type disorders. There is no science that confirms those things. There's anecdotal evidence. I mean, in practice, somebody might say, well, yeah, ever since I got my back adjusted, I feel like my digestion is better, or I'm going to the, um, you know, my headaches have gone away, or, you know, I'm breathing better. But those are anecdotal evidence. We cannot sit and say, yes, we can cure asthma. We can cure this only because we occasionally see those changes in practice. It's very irresponsible, I think, um, for chiropractors to claim that. Now, I want you to know that the majority of chiropractors, and I can't give you percentages, but the, the vast majority of chiropractors practice scientific evidence-based practice. They treat neuromusculoskeletal diseases, and they don't make those claims. There's a small fraction in chiropractic, a small fraction in chiropractic, that does make those claims. Now, um, the percentage of chiropractors that say that, I don't know, but we know that they're out there because they're the ones that are giving us a bad name and are getting in trouble. Um, what would happen? Well, Ralph, let me jump in. What would happen if you were treating somebody who, let's say they, let's take a wild case. Let's say they were blind 
Because we heard a case of this, and it was an anecdotal thing. There's one online. You can read yeah. about it. Yeah. And you adjust that person, and suddenly their vision comes back. Yeah. Would um, you then post that on your website and say, I, we can now cure blindness? I, ab- I absolutely would not. Why? Um, be- because it would be irresponsible to do that. It was probably just a spontaneous uh, cure of the condition that uh, nature and or God did. <laughs> um we know that there is no hard science to confirm that, uh, and it's irresponsible for chiropractors to make those claims. And particularly if you're, you know, you're putting it on your website and things like that. I mean, people are reading this. Uh, the lay public is reading it. Insurers are reading this. Physicians are reading this, and I think it really paints a, um, a sort of a bad picture of chiropractors when the vast majority of chiropractors do not make those claims. But the vast majority of us that are just plugging away in our office doing the, the best we can with patients, that's not going to garner a headline. But if you go to a website where a guy says, yeah, I can cure ADHD or these types of things, that's going to garner a headline, and it's going to kind of paint the rest of us with that brush. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting about chiropractic right now and not about chiropractic, the medicine. See, I don't know. I am not a chiropractic expert. I don't claim to be. I don't regularly, I probably shouldn't tell this to my next, to my guest, but I I don't regularly go to a chiropractor. I have in the past when I've been a couple times when I, my neck has been so sore and so screwed up that I have gone and it has provided relief. I don't know. I couldn't tell you what actually was done, except that it made me feel better for that time and was able to make me get through my day. But let me bring back in Dr. Ralph Shula, who is a chiropractor here in town. It seems to me that that kind of thing, I think most people buy into and say, yeah, you know what, if I've gone to a chiropractor, it has actually helped me for that kind of thing. But Ralph, if we start throwing out these ideas that you say are not scientifically provable of all these other things that chiropractic can do, that really undermines the credibility of what you guys are doing. Yes, it does. Um, But, you know, the public can choose. I mean, uh, the beauty is there's lots of chiropractors around and, uh, you know, do your best to look for someone, whether it be through a referral from a friend or referral from a family physician or reputation for somebody that practices evidence-based scientific chiropractic that's hands-on and that utilizes tools to treat these neuromusculoskeletal diseases and who is free of these dogmatic, antiquated ideas about, you know, treating the spine cures all problems. But uh, that's that's fine until you have somebody who is truly desperate because they have one of these horrible conditions and they read something that says, I can cure you and you don't need to go to all these things of real medicine. That to me is where the problem comes. And it's not just chiropractic, by the way. It's all different forms of medicine, holistic or otherwise. If someone makes promises, they can do something that doesn't seem to have much in the way of scientific background and they are desperate. That to me is troubling. It, it is. And there are steps that a patient can take in that situation. Um, we do have regulatory boards. The College of Chiropractors of Ontario in, uh, in Ontario obviously regulates chiropractors. And they respond to complaints, now, whether they be you know, sexual assault of patients, overbilling, overtreatment, and or unsubstantiated claims. I would encourage patients to, re- to report those chiropractors. Um, and steps can be taken to uh, curb that. Steps are already being taken because of some of the, there was an article in the Globe and Mail that talked about chiropractic and that brought out these unsubstantiated claims. Um, and there's already some steps being taken where chiropractors are being forced to remove some of these claims from their uh, blogs and or websites. Now, that's just a small step, but I think that's going to start the ball rolling. And I would encourage patients that if they meet somebody like this, 
uh, to report them. I so, know that's not an easy thing to do, but um, it's probably the only way that it's going to uh, make any change. And I encourage, as I've done on Twitter, as you've seen, other chiropractors to unfortunately sometimes report our own practitioners. You know, my job is not to protect other chiropractors, it's to protect the patient's interest. And so if I hear or see someone doing something that I think is unethical, it's also on me to lodge a complaint to see if I can get that chiropractor to change how they practice. So it's not, while it may look like it at times, it really is not the Wild West. There is a group that is supposedly or somewhat controlling what is said about this and the claims that are being made. One of, one of the, um, the Health Practitioners Act um, makes us self-regulated, along with physicians, dentists, these uh, optometrists, physiotherapists. We self-regulate. So there's a board that responds to complaints, and they're actually very good at it. But first, the complaint has to be lodged. Uh, and I know one of the issues that people have said on Twitter is, well, should we be not regulating ourselves? And that's in the works. I mean, we're trying to weed out these practitioners that make these claims, at least get them to change the way they practice, change the way they speak to patients. And it's slowly coming. And things like this, this Globe and Mail uh, article, will hopefully uh, light the fire under the boards and individual chiropractors to help make change. The frustrating part for me, uh, Scott, is, you know, when I look at chiropractic, and I've been a chiropractor for 29 years now, every NFL team employs a chiropractor. The Thai Cats and every CFL team has one. I'm involved with the Cats. The Bulldogs use one. They're used at the highest levels of athletes, um, of athletic endeavors, like the Olympics. So it obviously has tremendous benefit and value when it's in that neuromuscular skeletal um, uh, area, treating necks and backs and knees and shoulders and soft tissue injuries and things like that. Um, so it does have tremendous benefit for those. There's a small faction here within our profession that is claiming that it does other, other things. It's irresponsible. Um, it's unethical. And uh, we're going to do our best to try to weed some of that out. Well, and again, my point, uh, as not a regular user of chiropractic, maybe I should be, I don't know, but when I have had to because things have been really bad, I, I have had benefit from it. So I, I can only speak to that, that it's helped in those rare times when I've been completely messed up. Um but we go back to this. There will be some, and we only have a minute or two left here, Ralph. There will be some who will argue that what you're saying is completely wrong because it can do a lot of other things. And by people like you deflecting or minimizing or saying those things aren't real, it's taking away some of the real impacts that it could have. What would you say to them? Well, I would say this. Show me the research. The anecdotal evidence is not enough. You reading it in a 100-year-old textbook is not enough. Show me a random controlled trial. Show me a randomized controlled trial. Show me some hard research that shows results, and I'm more than happy to listen to it. You can't just say something because you think uh, it's going to work or that you read 100 years ago that it might work. Research has to confirm that. So to make that claim without research, I think, is just irresponsible. Do they have chiropractic conventions where chiropractors all meet and hash this stuff out and get into good fights? Uh, They they do, but the trouble is that the conventions... uh, they're different. There's those of us, hopefully the 80, 90% of us that go to conventions to learn how to be better practitioners. And then there's the ones that go to for the rah-rah chiropractic stuff, philosophical, vitalistic stuff. Um, so I don't know if we get to bump into each other, but we're sure bumping into each other on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> his name is Dr. Ralph Shulo. He is a chiropractor here in town with the Thai Cats, with the Bulldogs. He's got his own clinic on, where's your clinic again, Ralph? I'm on part, it's called Parktail Chiropractic and Rehab in the East End. Thanks for the plug. Ralph, appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our good buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHCH Sports. Sir, how are you today? Bonjour. You're uh, getting very excited, I'm guessing, about the return of Dwayne Casey today, former Raptors coach. He's back, and his Detroit Pistons will probably lose by about 40 tonight. 
Well, you never know. The Raptors will definitely be feeling a little moody after that 16-point spank job they had against the Pistons <laughs> earlier this week. But, you know, I'm just sitting here with, with the news anchor, Phil Perkins, and we're just sort of talking about Dwayne Casey and that, you know, if there's a soul that would dare to boo Dwayne Casey... I don't upon, think they will. On his return, it, it would be absolute shocking. I don't think they will. We'll say you send Perkins down to beat them up if they do. <laughs> I'll let him know that. Him and Taz, they can go down as like that the scene from Anchorman with the, the fight. Uh, the, the angry Anchorman. The angry Anchorman fight. Yeah, we'll give him the. Uh, he can have either the mace or the uh, the three pronged fishing trident to fight with, whichever he likes. Yeah, he just. I feel like the man is just too far respected and. You know, of course things, he is. Of course he is. I, I You're talking that, about Dwayne Casey now, yeah, not Phil yeah. Perkins. No, no, no. Phil, <laughs> Phil Perkins is, is a much respected man in this building. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the Olympics for a minute because they had the vote yesterday in Calgary. We had Jesse Lumsden on the show last night. Jesse was an avid, ardent, loud voice for the Yes campaign. He is obviously a passionate guy about the Olympics. He's been in three of them. Uh, I certainly understand where his passion for this comes from, but the Calgarians voted against it. This will not be happening in 2026. And Baba, my, my thought on this, as soon as I heard this is, this is not really an issue. I mean, it is an issue about Calgary, but Calgary is a far smaller issue in the big scope of things. This has become now a huge problem for the IOC that they, city after city after city is saying, you know what? No thanks. Too much money, too much hassle, too much security, too much everything. We're we're out. We don't need this. Um, you know, it, it it it's tough because here we are, you and I are sports guys at, at the at our core. And, you know, I, I definitely understand that, you know, this is a world class event and it kind of takes me back to the Pan Am games, um, and how we felt here locally. And how there really was a kind of, at the time, before anything was announced, there was seemingly a 50-50 divide on people that saw the importance of sports and what it can do for an area, the building of uh, certain types of infra- infrastructure that could last, you know, as a, as a sort of legacy for, you know, for many of us here that live in these areas. And there was also a lot of people that, you know, that to me made a lot of sense by saying, uh, why don't we take our money and make better use of it? You know, because there are so many other problems. Um, and I think you're right, Scott. There are a lot of places out there, especially across North America, that are that are saying, "Do we really need the games?" Uh, especially when there's an opportunity. We never know these things. When there's an opportunity of losing money, um, not an opportunity, an almost guarantee that you're, it's going to cost more than what you budget for. That's almost a guarantee. You're right. I mean, there have been some games. Atlanta, I think, was the first one. L.A., uh, you know, yeah. probably because of the large American TV deals. Um, that but L.A. was the first one. Peter Uberoth, who who ran the L.A. Olympics in 84, that was the first one that ever didn't lose money for years and years and years and decades and decades. But that model, even though everybody for a while tried to follow it, nobody could ever replicate that. Most Olympics have lost money or not broken even but Bubba, here's the here to me the problem is the IOC has made their own mess because they gave the games to Sochi with a promise that they were going to build an entire city just for the Olympics, fifty billion dollars. They gave it to Beijing that spent inordinate amounts of money on the summer games. They've given it to Rio that spent way beyond their means on these things. They've turned the Olympics from a sporting festival into an absolute 
something that all these other cities are now saying, yeah, we can't do that. We're not, we're not in a position to do that. And if that's what you're expecting, and I think that's what a lot of people are now thinking is expected, that's not us. We are not doing that. And they have cut out the number of cities that can afford to do this or are willing to do this by almost every city in the world. Yeah, and and, I, and isn't that funny that the, the the places that are rejecting it to me are a lot of places in North America. I mean, because you're looking at places that you've just sort of listed off there that, quite honestly, are financially not as well off as us in North America. Um, and you know, you talk. I mean, I, I think of Athens. I mean, I think of Greece. Their games. I mean, wasn't that a country that went bankrupt? Yes. Right and. Uh, you go to the internet or YouTube and you look at some of the infrastructure and some of the you know things that were built for those games and look at what they look like right now. It's shocking. They, they, the Parthenon is in better shape than some of the facilities for the Olympics. <laughs> Absolutely. I saw one picture, and I know this will hit you to the right, you know right where it hurts the most because I know you're such a baseball guy that the weeds mm-hmm. in the baseball diamond were, and this picture, and I'm not joking here, I'm not exaggerating, the weeds were easily two to three feet high on the infield. Yep, and the seats, have, the seats have been torn out. In the, in, like, most of the facilities are destroyed right now. They've just been abandoned. And in Rio, same thing. Uh, the Beijing, the Bird's Nest Stadium is barely used. And so you've got this, this thing where the Olympics have created, they have created, and we go back to the days of Juan Antonio Samaranch and the, the time where the IOC was just, it was whining and dining and flying around the world and spending money and, and taking money and all the Salt Lake City scandal and everything else. They have created this thing where rather than being a festival for the athletes where we want to just have the best athletes, it's become this thing where you have to put in billions and billions and billions of dollars that's the expectation now. And I think what's going to happen, I really do, Bob, is the the IOC is going to have, it, it, it is a new world for the IOC now. Rather than having all these cities lining up to just hand them money, they may soon be going and begging cities to take the Olympics and they may have to start putting money into it. Yeah. Uh, Scott, can I, can I say this too as well? That I think, and I'm just, just from talking to people as well, that the luster of the Olympic Games, in some ways, in, in not always, but in some ways, has totally disappeared. You think you think of the the massive amounts of drug scandals that have mm-hmm. you know that have hampered Olympic winters, especially some of the summer games. You know, time after time after time, where people's patience with athletes, and not all athletes, because you and I know many athletes out there that have. Worked. I mean, who you actually do work four strong years, giving up and sacrificing so much to try and do something on the world stage. And I believe there's a portion of the community out there that are losing their respect for the games, in a sense. And I, I know when I was growing up that I'll, I'll take Moscow for example, because we were. I mean, there wasn't the internet. We, you know. Um, we were just so unconnected with certain parts of the world that we were fascinated by when Olympic Games went to different places that we didn't understand or we didn't know the people, Munich, you know, Germany, uh, Russia. And now we're so well connected with the world that mystery is gone. 
it's like to me when Canada plays Russia, right, in a hockey in a hockey yep, tournament. Yep. It it, it 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 doesn't have that mystery and intrigue like it had in '72 and '76, where everything was just so different. I remember seeing a a a, a old um, wide world of sports of Muhammad Ali in his prime, probably early to mid-70s as the heavyweight champion of the world, going to Moscow, going to the Kremlin, and ABC following him, and, um, you know, shots of Russia that people had never seen before. I just don't know if we have that intrigue anymore, because I know it's about the sport itself, but it's also about so much more. It's about learning about culture and, and other places. And the athletes probably experience it because they're there, but as viewers, I don't think we feel that same zest for the games like we did before. No, uh, no. And, and you're right. You've got uh, these drug scandals. Uh, I, I've said this so many times on this show, and I'm going to repeat it again and again. As I said, we had Jesse Lumsden on last night. Jesse was on the show talking about that, that Netflix movie Icarus. And if anyone hasn't seen Icarus, which explains really the highest form of cynicism in the Olympics with the Russian state-sponsored doping scandal... You just have to look at that and say, how, how is this where the Olympics have gotten to? And I know that we've had an Olympics since then, but it's like, how, how, is, how is this what we've turned the Olympics into? And plus then you combine that with the fact that, as I say, you had to, or not had to, but Russia built an entire city just to host this rather than doing something that was with existing facilities or working around existing stuff. And you say this, this to me does not seem like what these games are supposed to be. And a lot of cities and Calgarians, look, I would have loved if the Olympics were in Canada, but I certainly can understand Calgarians and many of them, apparently Bubba, when they were voting and they were interviewed afterwards, many of them not saying I'm opposed to spending whatever mil hundred, I think Calgary was on the hook for like $400 million. They were not opposed to that. They were opposed to what they said was the guaranteed overruns that could be in the billions of dollars. But the Olympics have created that sense of uncertainty and doubt. Absolutely. You know, and how many times do we go into these games saying the games will cost this much? Never happens. And they end up costing this much, another amount, Right. And that's a major problem for people that live in these areas. And Calgary's not, you know, Calgary, the West is, you know, for many years, Calgary was a thriving, I mean, how many people from Ontario departed, you know, and Quebec departed this side of the country to go to Alberta? That's not the case right now. Uh, it's, it's a province that, you know, that, that's, that's struggling a little bit right now. There is, there is going to be, I really believe, what is going to come of this. There's going to be one of two scenarios that's going to end up, well, one of three perhaps with the IOC. The one of them, which I think is unlikely, is that the IOC starts going around begging cities to take the Olympics and saying, we'll fork out $500 million. I don't see that being all that likely. The, the one that I see is more likely is that you're going to have two or three cities that are told you're going to be on a rotation for the next number of Olympics. So let's say Calgary was in it, even though they're not going to be. Uh, Calgary, you get it in 2026, and you're going to have it again in 2042, and you're going to have it again in 2058. And that means you've got to keep your facilities up and running and adequate because we're going to be coming back. But at least you know if you put that money in, 
it's not just for a one-time thing. These are going to be legacy facilities for the next 30 to 40 years. That, I think, is probably going to be where this thing goes. I, I could actually, I could totally see a four to six city, you know, a rotation of some sorts uh, at different points uh, places of the world that, that, that it would definitely make sense. Um, the other, the other proposal, and I was on with Bill Kelly today, and Bill came up with this idea, and I think Bill was bang on with this other possibility, is the Summer Olympics are always in Athens. They just build permanent facilities in Athens, and we go back there every four years, and the Winter Olympics are, pick your spot. I thought Lake Placid seemed to make a lot of sense because you could do something there and keep it going, but that you have one central place, and we don't move it around all the time. That makes even more sense to me. I, I think it does make sense. Now, I, the IOC will fight against that. Of course. They obviously want to be a worldwide brand. And, you know, uh, the IOC, you know, what people, you know, forget, it, it's a business. And they're in it for making money. And, uh, you know, they'll always, always say that, it, you know, it goes back to the days of Athens and competition. But the IOC have done too many things over the years to make me think that, you know, they are in it for the money. Um, with the scandals that have gone on over the years, you know, many people in high-ranking positions making unbelievable salaries that, you know, are quite shocking to me. <laughs> you look at where some of these people live, uh, and, you know, I've always said that the IOC, and this, maybe I, I should be wrong by saying this, but I'll say it anyway, that, I mean, can you trust anyone from the IOC or, F- or FIFA? Well, if, if it was to go to the one-city concept... Where is the benefit to the IOC board members anymore? Well, I mean, because part of their thing is to go around, travel around the world and, and meet and greet. Now, I know they've tempered that back and they've pulled that back since the, all the scandals, but it, what's the benefit to being one of those board members? You get some free tickets to go to the Olympics every two, every four <laughs> years or every two years, I guess, but, you know, big deal. Um, I, I just don't see that they will want to do that. I th- you're right. I think they want to see themselves as major players and big op- and you know big operators on the world stage. But I look at this and I think, you know what? They have really put themselves in a position now where the Olympics don't seem to be carrying the same luster or certainly the same demand. That they once upon a time had. I mean, well, it, it, Scott, it's obvious. At least in my lifetime, and I'm not an old. I'm an old man, but not an old old man. And I would definitely say that to me uh, that, and I know this sort of changes as you do age sometimes about the golden era and you know what you once thought of things. But in my opinion, the Olympics, and this is sad. I'm, but I, I, me as a sports person, I'm saying that. And you and I, like I said, we know so many people that have tried for the Olympics or actually have been in the games. Uh, but these games, the Olympic Games, summer and winter, do not carry the same weight as they once did. No, and that and that that to me is sad because I I, I know enough Olympic enough Olympic athletes and know how important it is and know how much we get out of it. Think back to Vancouver, and I, that's all we have to do is think back eight years and what that meant to Canadians. Those two or two and a half weeks, it was a stunt. I don't think Canadian pride has ever been higher. Maybe, in my lifetime. Well, maybe during the '72 Summit Series, uh, but. And, you know, in spurts, like when Joe Carter hit the home run or when the Blue Jays won the first World Series, but that was off and on. This was for two solid weeks. You're right. There was never a higher point of ongoing Canadian pride. And the fact that we've gone from there to where we seem to be heading with the Olympics, I don't know. I, it, it, to me, it's sad and it's entirely self-inflicted. And it's not Canadian-inflicted. It's IOC self-inflicted. I can't see another games in Canada. 
Vancouver again, maybe. But other than that, it'll never happen in Toronto, in my opinion. Well, Montreal. Toronto doesn't want the Winter Olympics, and we probably couldn't host them because we don't really have the, the... You'd have to go up to Blue Mountain or somewhere, and I don't even think they're nearly big enough. Uh, so, yeah, you'd have Vancouver for winter. Calgary seems to be completely out. Montreal, I can't see ever happening again. They're still paying off the 76 Olympics. <laughs> Jean Drapeau is still paying off that Olympic stadium, I think. Uh, no, and, and you're right. You're right. And, and how many, even how many American cities... I mean, Los Angeles will bid repeatedly, and Chicago will bid repeatedly. I think, did, didn't Chicago pull out to the last one? They did, but the, you know that they'll be back in at some point. There'll be a couple or a few American cities, but I, the idea, the chances of someday down the road having something at like a, at a um, what did I say before, the uh, of Miracle on Ice, Lake Placid, the idea of, the, of a place like that hosting again, unless you make a permanent base, those days are gone. Long gone. It is sad, unfortunately, and I don't blame, and I say, I don't blame Calgarians. I get their fear. I understand the thought that they're thinking this thing will run over by billions of dollars and we'll be on the hook for this. I get that. Uh, and, and I'll be honest with you too. I mean, obviously we knew what this plebiscite coming and that it was going to come to this and there was some last second, you know, adjustments and funds to actually, you know, have it come to a vote of the people. Uh, I thought the people voted, uh, and I thought it was loud and clear. Sure it was. No, there's no, you would be an insane city councilor to go to council now and say, hey, let's push forward with this. <laughs> That's yeah. not going to happen. No. no. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, we will let you go hang out with uh, with your buddy Phil, see if he can get things sorted out. <laughs> we'll try, make sure. Have a good one. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me as always. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.